Hello and welcome to the Silvio Chronicles, I think episode 5. Pretty certain it's episode 5. Um, I'm Sean Smith, the awesome person who makes this website possible for the joys of the internet and the 21st century. I'm joined by three guests today, making his, I think, third appearance, or appearance, entrance, start, whatever you want to call it, is Christopher Strickland, the North's answer to lots of things. Hi, Chris. Hello. We're also here with Montesaurus Rex, Monty. Good evening, and thank you for allowing me to join this prodigious, astonishing, and stupendous show again. Well, stupid. Don't forget after Brexit, you're not allowed to join. Yeah. <laughs> and making his debut. No. Stop it. And making his debut on the Stevie Chronicles is a man from the West Country itself, it's a place that's not in any known maps of the South or the North or Scotland. It's Alistair Walker. Evening all. At least we have cider. You do have cider, that's true. Uh, are you related to Murray? No. No, <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, never mind. Well, good evening anyway, Alistair. Good evening. Right, let's get down to business, boys. So, episode five of the Chronicles is going to be about car safety because we've ah. done we've done motorsport, we've done karting, we've done bikes. So I thought I'd do something more grown up and. Uh, I'd like to think we're all in safe hands. Oh, I see what you did there, Chris. I see what you did there. Yeah. Safe hands. Yeah. Right. So we've got some sort of experience between us uh, we've all owned a range of cars from different ages um, some of us have worked in car safety and testing and that sort of thing um, Alistair Walker's from the West Country where safety is a thing that some people do I have also experienced my fair share of car crashes he has because you used to be a what's it called Al when you did your racing uh, stock car driver yeah stock car driver so plenty of crashing um, and I was once crashed into so We've all had our fair share of crash experience. Wasn't that by a deer? No, that was a different crash. Uh, close enough. That wasn't a crash, that was basically murder. <laughs> oh, standard. Of my Celico, attempted murder at least. Obviously the deer died as a result. Capital punishment and all that. Um, so yeah, we're talk here to talk about safety. Car safety, in fact. Um, so... Let's start at the beginning. Back when Monty was a small boy, uh, 1861. The first. <laughs> I'm steady. I'm not that old. <laughs> Only 112. Yeah. 1861. Uh, speed limits were introduced in the Locomotives on Highways Act. Yeah. How do you think of that for a fact? I should probably say actually to start with, I've got lots of my information and dates from blog. Dot motoringassist.com, which I'll put in the article at some point to say thank you to. Um, so when I sound clever here with dates, it's entirely due to them. So there we go. So let's talk about speed limits, people. Alistair, where do you stand on speed limits for safety? Um, I mean, definitely needed, because, I mean, where I live, we've got a 20-mile-an-hour limit, and honestly, I wouldn't go back to having a 30-mile-an-hour limit now, but that's... Yeah, a lot of it. There, Alistair. Thirty miles an hour. Whoa. It's a bit more dear old cars. Well, no, especially in residential areas. The thing is, the average person is not necessarily that aware of what is going on around them. 
So when you get a very built-up area, speed limits for safety are definitely a good thing. Yeah, it gives both the driver and the pedestrian time to react. Yeah. And it gives me time to hit the horn at that 14-year-old that's just <laughs> jumped off the pavement on his bicycle. That's very true. Um, Monty, do they, what's the speed limit in Jersey? <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so, yeah, unlike you guys, I'm uh, normally used to doing 40 mile an hour at the very most. And even then, that's only on our one dual carriageway of the island. Otherwise, everywhere else now seems to be 30, 20 mile an hour. Um, and there's also over 100 miles of 15 mile an hour roads uh, scattered around the islands, which make up all the kind of country lanes. Having said that, they're also justified because they're sort of priority to cyclists. Ooh. And the actual width of the road is just about the width of a car, but they're two-way. So in that aspect, it is justified uh, in my particular case. Um, fun fact for you guys. Do you know why speed limits were originally introduced? Or rather, what was one of the main reasons as to why the speed limits were introduced back in the 1860s, given mm -hmm. this was 20 years before cars? Did they get scared? Hold up. Say again. Wasn't it to do with carriages, like horse-ridden carriages? Um, it was partly to do with horse and carriages, but um, it was more to do with the, the steam locomotives, as um, this was, at the time, the latest in technology, and it gave people an opportunity to travel at more than 10 miles an hour. Wow. Uh, one of the biggest fears at the time, however, was that uh, if you were to travel so fast that the air would be sucked out of the carriages. So um, a lot of trains were limited to something ridiculous, like eight or nine miles per hour. Thankfully, science kind of took over, realised this was a load of um, rubbish, it was, it was and um, speeds began to increase. Um, actually, to the point that for a lot of roads, when automotives uh, started coming around at the start of the 20th century, there wasn't really speed limits. And uh, when the M1 was built... Um, my understanding is it wasn't until the 1960s that the speed limits started coming in again, That's and uh, there seems to be a lot of stories about um, a, um, a certain Shelby Cobra preparing mm. for their Le Mans uh, <laughs> stint along the M1 when it just opened up and it clocked over 190 mile an hour. I think that's very brave of them because the M1 is an incredibly boring road, so you know to go that to try and get it over with as fast as possible, I think that's commendable. Today is a very boring road. Remember, this was the 1950s and 60s. There was nothing like it in the world. So there's even and less. It was such a, was such a pr prestigious place that the first service station, the Watford Gap, used to be where all the celebrities and the high-profile names used to hang out because this is a brand new, cool, hip and trend. Those are words I thought I'd never, ever <laughs> expect to be heard uh, describing the Watford Gap's uh, service station. But there you go. There you go, indeed. And that actually lays this... a lorry that was filling up at Watford Gap. 200 quid. What <laughs> expensive. My wow. condolences, sir. Apparently, it wasn't my money that they nicked, but yeah, it, was, it was quite expensive. Yeah, I could believe that. However, yes, answering your original question, uh, so what's my opinion on speed limits, though? Um, I think they do actually serve a very good purpose, which is a shame because um, being a racing driver, I would love to see unlimited speed limits everywhere, but it's just far too uh, uh, reckless with how busy roads are nowadays. Um, I, 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 sorry, go on. Sorry, I was going to say, 
similar point of view having come from racing as well when you're on a track you can definitely you know the people around you nine times out of ten you trust the way they can drive whereas speed limits on the road are definitely needed because you don't have that same you don't know everyone there you don't know how they're going to react and you don't know how competent they are behind the wheel Hmm. so bringing everyone down to the lowest common level of competence keeps (laughs) everyone safe in general situations and even then that's uh, a rather large assumption because uh, we're all assuming that because you pass your test that means uh, you're capable of driving out to 70 miles per hour um actually one of the biggest discussions as um as uh, we were discussing uh, in the previous podcast um my well, for the last two years i've been working with a, a road safety company uh euro ncap etc and uh, one of the biggest concerns that um i think a lot of people share is uh, for example let's talk about uh, our parents who passed their test 70s or 80s uh, sorry in the 1970s or 80s uh, typically most people would have passed their test in a 1.2 1.4 litre car back in the day that would be a metro or a fiesta or something like that uh, obviously as uh, you've uh, hopefully had a successful career you're now driving around in your uh, nice BMW M5 or something <laughs> like that is that BMW M5 really uh, comparable to the 1.2 litre Fiesta that uh, you learned to drive in uh, back in the 80s? Um, yeah, we actually that's a years of them driving, that their competency as a driver, granted, on a base level, it might not have changed, but their reactions and how they read the situation that's in front of them, you would assume that that's developed and the experience they've learned from those 40 years of driving will have made it so that that skill gap let's say between your fiesta mark one and your bmw m5 will have shortened mm, and i i agree with you but again we're assuming and yeah, not assuming. and not everyone will learn the same way and what i would believe is right i'm sure someone else will tell me is completely wrong and this is kind of where the, the biggest issue with the uh, driving on the public roads is, is that everyone has their own definition as to what is right and once you passed your test that's when you're doing your real learning on the roads i mean until recently um driving on the motorway wasn't part of a, your assessment and from my understanding you weren't allowed to drive on the motorway on your outplates that was something you did after you passed your test yep yeah that's, could be fair that, to that's a big ask isn't it i don't think I so i don't think any of us I think motorways are our test to drive on. If you're on a motorway doing a long motorway journey, it's so much more stress. You know, it's not as stressful. It's a calmer experience. As long as you're paying attention to what's going on, not 50 metres in front of you, but a lot further down, a motorway journey is well, it's not easy, but it's a simple endeavour compared to a 30-mile-an-hour zone through the middle of a busy city centre. I mean, I just look at London, for instance. I don't find motorways to be any more difficult. I don't find... you take something like my first experience on the motorway, I had... I think I'd had the car for two weeks, and I had a car that had less than a litre-size engine rolling down the motorway. You get bullied by everything on the road in a car that small. Well, I don't disagree with that. It's just, you know, that's because you have a less than... What was it? Cinquecento, Cinquecento, whichever one it was. I have one of those. 
you know, that, I'm not saying that you won't. Oh, I don't. It's just that you know where you are. Granted, you've got big Land Rovers and Range Rovers in the fast lane, but you know that your car probably can't do, you know, it can probably do 70, but, you know, that's a stretch because of the, the power of your car. But, you know, you know your position within the lanes of the motorway. Hmm. And uh, everything you're saying, Chris, I do completely agree with. But, again, it's still assumption. You know you can drive like that. I, I would like to think that a lot of people can drive like that. But we've also seen too many examples on the roads that, for whatever reason, either a lapse of concentration because they've been driving for too long, they're fatigued, or they've lapsed into their... Um, tests and they've kind of forgotten some of the golden rules and you know that's it no tests to stop me now freedom and they kind of drive like a, a bit of an ass on the road uh, for whatever other reason again we, we're assuming that people are up to a level when there's multiple incidents where this just isn't the case otherwise accidents wouldn't be uh, so strife as they are just to add from my perspective to this so as we've already discussed i'm from jersey 40 mile an hour speed limits over here I do exactly the same uh, type of test as what uh, the DVLA will do, uh, the same uh, theory test, etc. But my actual driving assessment was only ever done in Jersey, so they could only ever test me up to 40 miles an hour. My first ever experience on the motorway came about five years after I passed my test, when I uh, took my car over to the mainland, <coughs> got, got onto a ferry into Portsmouth Harbour, and within mm. about a quarter of a mile of leaving that harbour, I was on my first motorway. Yep. And straight away, I was thrown straight into the deep end there, and I was expected to know how to drive at 70 miles an hour. Thankfully, because I do racing, I was used to this. However, there's plenty of examples of people, other people from the island or the neighbouring island, they find it very overwhelming, and they just flat out will not drive on the, the mainland uh, because of that. And that is my greatest concern with regards to the road safety element, is that uh, you're not actually assessing and testing people on this. And so for those reasons, I do think the speed limit is appropriate today because of how busy the roads are. And because, as Alistair said, we've got to go for the common denominator here and assume that well, everyone hopefully knows how to drive at 70 mile an hour because there's no guarantee they know how to drive above so, that. So this is very much a... Um a problem for islanders and people in the country especially who will have less experience of um, national speed limit roads and 70 mile an hour roads but what, then we consider in germany for example they have the autobahns and Italy the autostradas um with more areas without speed limits um why do we think the uk can't possibly deal with that on the big main roads i think partly as well they all have you notice it when driving around Europe. Countries have very different driving cultures. I wouldn't necessarily say... So I drove on... It wasn't an unlimited stretch, but I did drive on a German autobahn two years ago now. And I have to say, it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience. I don't... I would not have wanted that stretch of road to have, have an unlimited speed limit, in all honesty. Because the German autobahns felt very claustrophobic compared to our motorways it felt very small and also That's probably because they are they, they are only three lanes wide most of the autobahns hmm. but also their roads are surprisingly of very poor quality i found i found the french roads especially to be a much french and dutch roads to be a much higher 
of quality to the road. You know what I mean, where you get a rough, not very well taken care of road and it doesn't give you much confidence in what if there's a pothole coming yeah. up. Every road in the south. Essentially, <laughs> yes, because I've done it once. There is nothing I can think of I'd want to hit more, well, other than another car, but a pothole at 70 miles an hour is not something I want to hit. And that's the feeling I got on the German autobahns is this road is not well taken care of. I shouldn't be going this fast down it. It's not quite that. Uh, the, the roads themselves, if you look at them in detail, the, the, there's no potholes or anything on there. The, the difference was a lot of those autobahns were built uh, back in uh, an era that apparently I'm not allowed to talk about, otherwise it makes me sound like a sympathiser or someone with... Um, uh, oh, gosh, what's the right word for this? The 30s and 40s? Yes, the 30s and the 40s. So when these autobahns were built back in the 1930s and 40s and even the 50s, um, a lot of the roads back then were prefab, so there were layers of concrete. Uh, the actual individual slabs of concrete themselves are still in very good uh, condition. This is, you've got a square of concrete and another square of concrete, and so you've got those little slots and those gaps in between them, which creates the kind of sensation that you get as you drive along them. Uh, I believe the M27 actually uh, still has a lot of this uh, from the M3 junctions you head towards uh, Portsmouth. So yep. Anyone listening may actually be able to understand what I'm on about. Um, I think... I do agree with Alistair, though. The roads are actually a lot narrower, I would say, in comparison to the motorways uh, in the UK, certainly in the south. Um, the biggest difference, I would say, though, is the actual driving attitude of people, of most Germans, in comparison to, say, your typical Brit. If you're in the outside lane in the autobahn and you can see a car coming behind you, you know to get out of the way, otherwise you're going to cause or contribute towards a huge crash. Yeah. How many times, particularly, let's say, the M25 around Heathrow, where there's six lanes of traffic there, and people still sit in the outside lane with another car right behind them, flashing away at them, get out of my way, and they just don't do anything about it, and they just carry on in their own way. Another good example, the A34, <laughs> uh, the dual carriageway, which seems to get so much traffic on it, really should be a motorway, in my opinion. The... Um, in case you guys haven't heard of this, there's a popular event that goes on there every day. It's a drag race uh, between two HGVs where one's doing 55.6 mile an hour and the other one in the right lane is doing 55.7 mile an hour. Oh. And these races can last for easily 11, 12, even 20 miles. And because they're taking up both lanes, uh, all the traffic behind can do is wait, really you don't really see that kind of activity happening on German roads, certainly from my experience anyway. Correct me if I'm wrong, anyone. Just, just slightly diverging from that more towards driver etiquette. I think one of the best systems I've seen is when we took a trip down to the south of France and we went on French motorways. And I want to say it was, I want to say this is true in the, I hope it's true anyway, in that if you're overtaking a vehicle on the motorway in France, you have to indicate and that once you've overtaken that vehicle, you then have to pull in 
And I think that's a great system. I know in Spain you're doing that. That's, well, that's wonderful. Why, why don't they implement that in the UK? What, I, what, what, what? I think it's a fantastic system. Because <laughs> the blaring BMW just sticks his indicator on and goes all the way. And if he forgets, he gets a 60 quid fine. Or you can get your lane hoggers who hog the lane. If they're not indicating, that's a fine. And then that teaches people to move across when you've overtaken. Because at the end of the day, that outside lane is called the overtaking lane. Shall it's we? Really I, 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 I do believe those uh, laws are actually in place with the DVLA. It's just no one actually bothers to do anything about it, which is the most annoying thing. Shall we? Guys, yeah, something screaming down the left hand side, yeah? It'll have its indicator on, and as soon as it's past, your indicator comes off, they move across. So the next thing can come screaming past it. <laughs> guys, yeah, perfect. Guys, I agree. I'm, if we followed that, I mean, I've similarly like driven on French motorways. They were, yeah, they were a pleasant experience to drive down. I'd say more than the German autobahns. I think they have a a friendlier etiquette than the Germans. We're going to I move on, guys. We're going to move on from the uh, speed limit side. Um, because this meant to be about car safety. And as much as speed limits obviously make a big difference to the cars in terms of how fast you crash, a lot of that nowadays, it does matter the how, how the cars are made and the advancements that have happened in the last hundred or so years. Um, so we're going to move on to the way that cars are built, the manufacturing plants, um, the ways that car, cars are automated in their manufacture these days, which makes a lot of difference. Um, so let's start with that. So let's start again back when Monty was a teenager in about uh, ooh, about about the nineteen twenties. Uh, <laughs> uh, I thought that was you, Sean. Oh yeah, I was I was, I was a, a wee snapper then. Um, anyway, they, the cars all had these big steel ladder frames. They were all Corolla Deville cars, looked the part. Not so brilliant in crashes though, and we've made a lot of jumps in safety since then. Let's discuss that. Go. Chris. Nonsense. Uh, the cars back in the 20s uh, were built, they were indestructible. The only issue was the, the drivers would get chucked out of them uh, when they had an accident. Chris? Yeah, that's a pretty good system. You know, get them clear from the accident. Nobody hurt. Nobody, you know, nobody gets killed. They sort of roll and bounce and slow themselves down. <laughs> exactly. Um, the problem is if you're bouncing down the road without say a bike jacket and a helmet it's gonna hurt quite a lot ah, small things it doesn't look like dead from stopping bike jackets you mean pussy devices no <laughs> 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 sorry i'm forgetting this is a podcast oh, sorry so that's right so anyway. uh, sean could i uh, suggest that you get a um bleeper or something just to put in front of my voice for maybe the next five minutes I can be a beeper. Mm. That's not a beeper, that's a hum. Glad <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I thought you went to university, Alistair. Come on. <laughs> so, in, in the last... I went to Hertfordshire University. <laughs> we all did. We, no. all, we all suffered. Um, so, let's move on to car safety. Let's talk about the ways that cars are manufactured these days with their... Particularly, I think, their crumple zones and their crash tests and... All the safety stuff that's happened since then. Right. Well, I can certainly shine some light on there. Uh, although I'm probably going to sound biased with what I'm about to say, given where I've been working. But I, I do strongly believe that um, Euro NCAP has helped 
raised the profile of road safety in the last 20 years uh, to the point where, well, let's look at their first car. They, they have a test that was back in 1997. That was a uh, Rover 100, also formerly known as the uh, Rover Metro. And uh, whilst I appreciate that the design of the car was based from something from the late 70s to 80s, oh, sorry, early 80s, it was at the time still a very popular hatchback, which was uh, being sold tens of hundreds of thousands uh, at the time. So it was a common hatchback, which they had to go and throw into the wall and see how well it would crash. And the answer was it didn't crash very well. Oh, no, it crashed brilliantly. And, no, it crashed horrendously. And uh, for people, you know, since then, that kind of set the benchmark. And for other manufacturers, they went, okay, so our cars have got to be better than that. And like with all competitions, as things get better, you know, oh, this is now the next best thing. People want to improve on that. And what we've now seen in the last 20 years is uh, uh, we, we're we at a point now almost with every single car that when it crashes into a wall, it's, there's a very good likelihood that you're going to be able to walk out of there unscathed or without major injuries. Whereas 20 years ago, it was, for a lot of people, you know, a fact of when they leave that morning to go to work, that they may not come back because something horrendous could happen on the motorway. Um, I think a couple of years ago, there, there was um, something around Kent, uh, a motorway along a bridge, but I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. Uh, but anyway, the bridge got fogged out. Is, is that the one? No, it wasn't Dartford Bridge. It was somewhere uh, further along the road, somewhere uh, towards the island. Uh, but the bridge got fogged out and something ridiculous, like 80 cars got involved in a pileup. But there was no deaths, there was no injuries. And y you just think of that now. You hear the story, you just think of you idiots. Why are you driving so close in the fog and stuff like that? Of course, something disastrous is going to happen. If you think 20 years ago, if something like that had happened, there's a good chance that a lot of people would have had serious leg injuries, um, head injuries and stuff like that. You know, the, the advent of um, airbags, um, pedestrian protection systems uh, on the cars, uh, the, these have all helped. Uh, the crumple zone, so it absorbs the energy, so the driver doesn't go rebounding off um, parts of the car. And um, they've all done their parts to help make cars a lot more safer now and even for a pedestrian if you're to be mowed down by a car the way that bonnets are shaped now you're going to roll you're more likely to roll over the car mm -hmm. rather than get caught underneath it which is game over at that point yeah, but that's, that's all well and true but with this massive influx of suvs and high-nosed vehicles like stuff like your, your mockers and and your cash cars and your jukes and so on and so forth are we taking that away now because you've got this massive frontal area because everybody wants a higher car? I don't. <laughs> I don't Thank goodness not everyone does. SUV-type vehicle. Could, could you imagine an SUV on an island like this? Well, I can actually because most people here seem to own one for whatever reason, whereas I've got a nice little Fiesta, one litre, and you know, that's what you need when you're doing 40 mile an hour, but that's another matter. Uh, answering your question, uh, yes, it has created a new uh, risk for pedestrians. Um, having said that, Still, the design of the bonnets on these SUVs are so curved, and a lot of them are coming with uh, pyros or with like a spring-loaded mechanism. That's it. It changes the angle of the bonnets on contact again to try and help encourage 
Well, that's the the pedestrians roll over it. Um, also, if they were to hit the bonnet and there's an engine right underneath them, they're not going to bounce off the engine, essentially, now that they're bouncing off the spongy, uh, springy uh, bonnet. Um, and also, with I'm sure we're going to be talking about this later, hopefully, but with uh, the uh, inclusion of uh, ADAS technology, uh, a lot of cars are performing their own emergency uh, autonomous braking if a yeah. pedestrian was to walk out in front of them, even if the driver wasn't to respond now. Uh, again, mitigating uh, the speed of an accident or, in a lot of cases now, actually not hitting the pedestrian altogether. And That's the idiot gets to live for another day. I believe it was the Peugeot 407 which had the first um, sort of the frontal area designed to crash into a pedestrian. Not deliberately, but... Um, in the event of one, it would have the ability for the pedestrian to roll off and not get as killed as uh, would normally be the case. Um, and as, as Monty says, since then it's been a case of adding more airbags, both inside the car and also under the bonnet and around it. Uh, and also having body panels, which instead of being made of steel, they've been made out of aluminium, which would be able to absorb energy better. Um, um, a lot of them are made out of plastic as well now. They're, they're designed exactly, simply just more so, yeah. to break. They, they'd much rather have the compartments break and take the energy that way exactly. rather than, say, bend. Because yep. then all of a sudden all that energy is twisting in another direction and then it screws around the, the driver inside. Yeah. Um, actually, there's a good video on YouTube, uh, 20 years of Euro NCAP. And uh, this was a video done last year for the 20th anniversary. And um, they slammed a Rover 100 into a wall, as that was the first car they did. And then they did a Honda Jazz, um, one of the latest generation ones, I believe. And the slow-mo videos of the two are just so telling of how a car's design has changed now. Because with the Rover 100, in the 90s, airbags were becoming a kind of thing there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were saying, oh yeah, airbags. But at the time, it was still an optional thing to have on a car. Uh, but at the time, it was a case of, oh, yeah, if you have an airbag, you're going to be safe. But not a lot of people were believing this. Uh, looking at the slow-mo video of how the Rover crashed, with good reason, because this car was designed, as I said, back in the 70s, the 80s. And just by including an airbag into it isn't going to save you, because if you look at the slow-mo video, the driver actually completely misses the steering wheel, and his head goes flying off and headbutts the A-frame. Whereas the Honda Jazz... You know, when they designed that car with the crumple zones and with the driver, the seat, the seat purposely tilts. So if you're in a head-on crash, the car is essentially guiding you into your crash, into your pillows, into your airbags mm -hmm. to make sure that you're as protected as possible. So it's not just a case of slap an airbag and you're fine. The, the, the whole concept of the car has been changed because it's not about getting the best performance out of it. Now they've got to include in the design how you're, you as the individual inside it is going to crash to make sure that you're protected. And there's a hell of a lot of engineering that goes into making a car now. I and uh, I think uh, even Joe Bloggs, by looking at that video and just seeing how the driver reacts, how how they are being crashed into, you, you can see how much more protected they are now. And I would strong, strongly encourage anyone to go and have a look at it. I think that's one thing that's very obvious in those old crashes compared to the modern ones is the um, the actual chassis frame around the driver cell. Um, yes. How in the when you look at a Sechento or a Metro or something from the 90s, 
of um, a cheaper <laughs> price tag. Um, you'd often see the car sort of crumpling on itself um, around that area. I mean, the driver was trapped in the car after the accident. Um, certainly with modern cars, that's not impossible, but it's, it's less, it, it's much harder, it's much less likely to happen to someone. They're normally able to open the door um, and get out. But um, no, it's, it's been a... Ultimately, what we want. The engine gearbox and drive shaft all moved during a crash. Yeah. Because down and underneath the car... Mm -hmm. Quite because yeah, also you get the the engine and gearbox going down and under the car, and then you've got the collapse of the steering wheel. So it's not just all about crumpled zones and spreading the force and so on. It's about what happens in the engine bay at the time. That's a very good point, actually, because that, that's the the other thing in the slow mo video. You, you can see that the whole engine bay of the uh, the rover just moves back. And actually, if you have a look uh, a close up at the car, if you ever get to see it at a demo video, your legs would be gone. The the, the, the whole engine just took up your foot compartment area. Uh, whereas with the Honda Jazz, it it essentially stayed in place when as it moved back, as Chris says, it goes down. But when you look inside the cockpit of the car, you, your legs are safe. There, there's no intrusion in there. And uh, again, I think that's a very important thing uh, to address. Um, fun story. Many, many years ago, I had a friend who owned um, a Metro. Sorry, it sounds like I'm really bad mouthing Rover here, but given that they don't exist anymore, it's not like they consume me. But um, yes, my friend had a Metro many years ago, and um, he was coming out at a blind T junction. And uh, there was a car on the main road, and the car just went straight through his bonnet. <laughs> and I was one of the next people on the scene, and literally the, the whole bonnet and the front wheels were gone, and his legs were just dangling out of the cockpit. Miraculously, no injuries. Nice. But it just kind of shows how weak a chassis of a car of that design is in comparison to one nowadays. Speaking of crashes, um, Alistair, when you did your stock car racing, what did you tend to drive? Uh, so I had a 1980s... British Leyland Mini, which, for lack of a better term, was armoured, but that was that's a long thing to do with the history of the series, which I don't know if you want me to explain or not. May not today. Okay. <laughs> yeah, shut up, Alison. <laughs> but now carry on. So... I've heard that plenty of times. <laughs> no, no. Um, Alistair does make a good point, though. Um, with motorsport, you do so much modifications with cars that um, most of them they will still be roadworthy, but you wouldn't call it a standard car. Well, the thing is with most sport, with the safety gear in those cases, is you're designing for a very different kind of crash. Hmm. I'm sure Euro NCAP, you're generally sort of assuming car is going to crash at anything up to probably not 70s, probably more like sort of 80 miles an hour, but you're going to be crashing at road speed. Whereas even if you take that same, let's say, BMW 3 Series, because I happen to be looking at one on my computer, <laughs> you take that. If you're turning it into a race car, you're automatically kind of assuming that if it crashes, it's now not going to be crashing at 70, it's going to be crashing at 110. So what sort of modifications would they do to the car? I mean, obviously, you'd have. would you have a roll cage in those cars? In my stock car? Yeah. Yeah, so what we had in those was an internal roll cage, and because the cars were derived from a full-contact series, 
We also had exterior what was known as ironwork, but it was basically a steel frame around the car. Mm-hmm. Essentially made it a bit like a bumper car, yeah, for lack of a better term. And um, when, I mean, with you, you were doing oval racing, weren't you, Al? Yeah. So, so you wouldn't tend to have head-on-head collisions as such? Oh, no, I've had a head-on-head collision. <laughs> <laughs> Did it hurt? I, uh, I was a novice and I spun on the opening lap and because of the way they do it in those forms of racing the grids are reversed by a driver grading system so you get novice drivers at the front amazing and experienced drivers at the back because the experienced drivers are experienced they can pass everyone so yeah i made a mistake on the very first lap and the next thing i know i am head on with another car and how big was the crash um well, because of the way the cars were armoured, it was unpleasant, but no one was injured. Well, Paul, no one was injured. The person that crashed into me, I think, didn't have his harness done up properly, and he Ooh. headbutted his steering wheel. But that's... Oh. I think safety, that's... people. Safety. <laughs> yeah, I always had my um, race harness done up to the point that I'd end up with a slight bruise on my collarbone the I next go- day. I was, was going quite to ask wide. actually about the race harnesses. So did you have multi-point race harnesses or were they sort of... Uh, what, what sort of grade did they have to ap- appeal to? Yeah, so we didn't have... So the level of motorsport was relatively basic. We yeah. had to have safety gear there, but it wasn't to the same standard that you'd find at, say, an FIA or an MSA event. Um Obviously, we had to have crash helmets. They had to be of a reasonable standard. We had to have fireproof overalls. Harnesses, I don't... I think bigger competitions do, but some places don't require them to be in date. I made sure mine was, though, mm-hmm. personally. Um, I also had a current FIA spec harness at the time. Okay, so you you yourself were relatively safe as far as they went in your series. Yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't say most of the cars were unsafe, but I did make sure mine was as safe as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving on to what should we move on to? Let's move on to the ADAS stuff. Um, so, a lot of cars we've seen in the last twenty years have brought in a lot of technology, a lot of um, should we say smart systems, which are A, trying to make the crash safer if it can be done, or to avoid the crash entirely, as Monty was um, speaking about earlier. A lot of these systems range from, uh, what's it called, vehicle lane departures, um, automatic brakes and lights, um, and eventually we'll be moving into the AI and driverless car aspects. So um, let's discuss that. That's actually very uh, high-tech stuff you're talking about there. ADAS systems, so ADAS stands for Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. And um, you can get systems as simple as tire pressure monitors. So, you know, when you've got low tire pressure, obviously. Uh, Your rear parking sensors, uh, anti-glare, you know, the the adjustable lights, uh, the the things which we've almost been taking for granted for the last 20 years now. Those are all uh, forms of ADAS. Uh, Even rain sensors on your windscreen wipers. And uh, as Sean quite rightly says, uh, each and every one of these systems are here to uh, hopefully prevent an accident from happening. Um, again, 20, 30 years ago, 
how many people would you see running around on a flat tire without realizing it and oh. all of a sudden it goes bang on the motorway and Plenty. that's them off having a crash again if something as simple as that oh you have a low tire pressure pull over how many people are oblivious to that fact everyone so many people. people actually that's why you have these road campaigns of I think there's one recently of check your car. You wouldn't get on a plane without the pilot checking his plane. So why would you get in a car and do a long journey without checking your car? Mm. Exactly. And um, I, again, it comes down to, as I was saying with the original point, I, th I think the attitude of a lot of British motorists has a lot to do with how can there's so many accidents in comparison to, say, uh, Germany uh, with their autobahns and that. You, you could almost trust them to be able to drive on an unlimited speed road, whereas in the UK for... Whatever reason, so many people that I speak to, that their attitude is, it is my God-given right to be able to drive, so let me drive. Yeah. No, it is your God-given right to want to drive, and so long as you pass your test, congratulations, you are allowed to drive. But what a lot of people do seem to forget is essentially a car is a bomb. It's, uh, it's a two-ton vehicle a with 15 to 100 litres of fuel in there. If you're going to have a big crash... You could, you're easily going to kill people, and uh, I think a lot of people do forget that when they're driving a car and you've got passengers in there, you are responsible for those people's lives. I would like to point out on fuel tanks that there is very strict regulations stating where a fuel tank has to be. The effects of fire testing, um, impact testing, cold temperature testing, shock testing, and different orientations on the impact testing that all lead into making sure that fuel tank is safe. So you're very unlikely to have a liquid fuel tank. Part of which I'm sure we can have for. <laughs> yes, thank you, Alistair. I was uh, about to go mention that one. Um, yeah, no, you, again, you're completely correct. But again, the, this is the engineering coming into play to prevent an accident from being any worse than it is. A driver still has ultimate responsibility for the car whilst they're driving. And my concern is that a lot of people don't, for whatever reason, they seem to forget that they are ultimately responsible for their own lives and other people's lives, be that of a passenger in the car, another person on the road that they're about to overtake, a cyclist, a pedestrian that's crossed, etc., etc. Um, not everyone... So, you know, don't think I'm going off on a rant saying, oh, all British drivers are crap, because mm -hmm. I know there are many, many good ones out there as well. And many, many, they, when they drive, they, how do I put this? Their attitude to driving is, um, I want to work with you Absolutely. to prevent us both from having an accident. Some advanced drivers you see, you know, when they're braking for a red light up ahead, they're actually braking, always looking in their mirrors to make sure they're not braking too sharply that the person following behind them is going to smash into the back of them. Yep, I do you know, they're conscious of their surroundings, but not everyone drives like that. And essentially, that's my point. I think more German people, for example, do drive with that attitude in comparison to Britain. However, that's me going off on a ramble. I think I raised this uh, with Sorry, when go on. When I, I think when, when we did this, the first filming of the ADAS podcast, which will sadly never, ever be found, um, yes. I did raise this one with you with the fact that with a lot of these automated systems coming in, you know, uh, automated braking, uh, lights, etc., etc., um, how much more do you think that will affect the driver in terms of their uh, not paying as much attention to what they should do? I think it really will. 
It's a, it's a very valid uh, point, and it's something which I hear many, many people uh, express concern about. Ultimately, uh, I would like to believe that as ADAS becomes more prominent and autonomous driving becomes more prominent, that people will be using it for the right reasons. Uh, for example, if I use adaptive cruise control, for me anyway, it's one of the biggest stress factors for me is when you're on the motorway and you're trying to keep that two-second gap to the car in front of you at the very least, but someone will always jump into it because they go, oh, look, a gap, and they, they stick themselves in there, and you're always having to regulate your gap. By having that form of ADAS on the car and let the car worry about keeping that two-second gap minimum to the car in front of you, I found that actually it reduces my fatigue on the road, and I'm able to drive for much longer really? or reach my destination a lot less stressed. Huh. I would like to believe that for the majority of the good drivers who are on the road, they will use the technology for that effect. Unfortunately, um, you will never ever be able to remove stupidity from the roads. Um, but what the extreme forms of ADAS can do, the uh, autonomous emergency braking, for example, if, God forbid, for any reason, someone's walked out into the road in front of you and you've not seen them, sadly, more often than not, it seems to be you're on your phone when you're not supposed to be but mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of doubt let's say it's a lapse of concentration or your kid in the back of the car has just undone their seatbelt and you're momentarily distracted Yeah. if the technology on that car can prevent that kid who's just run out into the road in front of you just once, once it's prevented an accident from happening then to me it's worth it and to, and to me, it's about educating and encouraging people to use it in the right way. It's a good point. I think just going from what you think is a good system to what I think is a bad system, the automatic turning you can get on modern vehicles nowadays that will automatically track the road in front of you and turn for you. Mm -hmm. Now, I know the system's in place to stop you from having an accident with these things, but... There is a worry, or at least I have a worry, that they'll have this automatically turning system, but it will register that your the corner is too sharp and then disengage. I know there'll probably be warning systems to say that it's disengaging, but, you know, you can imagine a driver is going on a road, he looks down the road and goes, oh, my car, my system will track that road and turn that corner because it's not that sharp. It doesn't. It just so happens to be a lorry on the other side of that corner that's just rounded that you can't quite see. And the block slams into it because he's paying too much attention to his ADAS system and believing in it too much. So there still should be a vigilance to the systems that you have. And I, no, you, you're completely right. And uh, my personal gut feeling is I don't like this grey area. Uh, I used a good example before, the speed limiters, because I think that's great. Automatic steering, I'm not 100% on board with it. But I also appreciate that the technology needs to be developed as every manufacturer wants ultimately to have a fully autonomous vehicle. And there's only one way you're ever gonna get the technology up to standard. Sadly, it comes with practice. Sadly, it will mean having to- Should that be tested on a public road though? You can't, you can't test it on a racetrack, can you? It's got to learn. The machines have to learn. And with each generation of technology which comes into the car, and you know, by when I say each generation, this is every 12, 18 months. It's becoming more and more and more efficient. Emergency braking, for example, 
when this, this first started coming out six years ago, you'd be lucky if you'd be able to avoid an accident up to 20k. Now the, the system's already intelligent enough to be able to avoid an accident in, in excess of 80 kilometers per hour. Really? It's the same with the steering systems, and it's... I'm sounding a bit too much like an engineer here, but... Um, well, you're an engineer, so... Oh, 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 yeah, there, there is that aspect, I guess. But ultimately, the technology is only ever going to get better when you put it in the situation it's designed for. Now, and there's only so much that testing it on a runway or on a racetrack or in private land is going to go. I was going to say... say I think we're, we're entering that horrible grey area now. When that... Tesla X that killed a, a woman because the bloke behind the wheel was using the autonomous mobile testing. You're saying that's a, a willing sacrifice? Oh, that... I don't like that story for a multitude of reasons because, for a start, the media really glazed over the facts there. If that wasn't an autonomous vehicle and it was just another car that had crashed into that person, the headlines would have actually said, Idiot Jaywalker... Uh, crosses highway in the middle of the night and gets run Not over. Anything, Brian. Yeah, exactly. And that's I think that's very important to stress uh, in that situation there uh, was um, that it was a jaywalker on a highway in the middle of the night. And if you actually look at the videos which have been supplied uh, and have been shown in the media, uh, that person comes into visibility about 30 metres away. Yeah. Uh, if you're traveling at a highway speed, yeah, yeah, exactly. The fastest reactions from a human, they still would have plowed into them and probably have finished them off for good. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. Looking at the data and from the way that whole accident unfolded, I get your point completely. That driver should not have been on their phone because they were there testing it, and it's not a full-proof system yet. But I strongly believe that the technology on that car probably did as good a job as what a human driver would have done if they were in control of that car at that time. It was some of the worst so, conditions it could have been put into, basically. it's Correct. Yeah, it was pretty horrendous conditions, and unfortunately it's because it was an autonomous vehicle. It just gave uh, media an opportunity to do some headline uh, grabbing. Yeah. Um, it's... I don't think there's ever a perfect answer to this, though, Chris. You know, when, when airbags first came out and no one believed that they, they were going to do the job and you know for the first five years they weren't doing a really good job and it was only with the next iteration of airbags they realized oh actually we need to fire these uh, you know they, they need to ignite quicker yeah but to be able to take quicker if you had a crash you probably were going to get seriously injured so having an airbag in there having an airbag go off and reducing the impact or reducing the the injury is better but we're talking about somebody externally from the vehicle being hit by somebody who's clearly testing the vehicle on a public road granted it was in the middle of the night yeah. and he was on his phone he wasn't paying attention he was using the ai system to track the road and to see what's going on but it's nice to have these things out there in the wild testing and so on but should something that's only really in the infancy of its development be out them. I think that yes, if it's used properly, this is the Precisely. problem. If the guy wasn't paying attention to it, he's not. Because what I think people sometimes forget is what, especially the Teslas, they're not autonomous yet. They have ADAS systems, but they're a long way from actually being autonomous, autonomous, which means 
yes, you can kind of sit back and relax a bit, but you still need to have both hands on the wheel, feet ready to react. You can't just turn around and have a conversation. You can't take your eyes off the road with them still. They're in assist. They're not taking over for the driver yet. Correct. And And ultimately, until there is a fully autonomous vehicle on the road, it is still ultimately the uh, responsibility of the driver. There has been a fully autonomous vehicle on the road. If you look towards, uh, I think it was... The Google. When they had a... Ah, I can't remember the, the way they list um, autonomous vehicles, but they had a, a stage five, let's say. Correct. Stage five autonomy, and that was autonomous. It could lane change, it could look in front of it and so on and so forth. Granted, it had the help of the French network, but it was an autonomous vehicle for all intents and purposes. There's a couple of prototypes which are available for uh, doing demonstrations. Um, I know which one you're on about. My understanding was that was on a closed piece of road for allowing people and journalists to have a shot in it. Uh, my understanding is there's not actually any on the public roads yet which are of level five. Correct me though if I'm wrong there because I'm, I'm. When I watched the. I'm just going to plug it, the car throttle video, mm-hmm. there was clearly other people on the road. I could be wrong. I could be, it could have been staged. I don't think it was. But my understanding of it was it was on a French motorway of two kilometres with sen- well, not sensors, but antennae down the middle of the road that talked to the car about what was in front of it. I, I don't know how correct that is from a point of view of reality but from the video's point of view it looked as if it was on a public road in a, on a french motorway this doing its own that's thing. very interesting could you find me the link for that please because I, I don't think i've actually you know, I'll heard about this yeah and you can put it in the description yes i can um thank you just um i think the, the only bit of, I, I personally don't like autonomous cars i think they're potentially too dangerous but i will give it one bit of benefit of the doubt is the fact that if you look at the way technology has improved in the last, say, 10, 15 years, and where, if it goes at anything like the same rate, how it could be in by 2030 or onwards, I think we've got to look at how, what sort of radar systems, what sort of um, AI will be available. Well, Chris, what are you listening to? Sorry, that was just the video. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think we need to look at the... Um, how, how much AI could possibly change in the next sort of 10 years and you know we got to at the end of the day we do have to test things in order to actually understand their worth and their feasibility I think that manufacturers should put in um, kill switches in the sense of um, you know if, if, if the driver is being lackadaisical in the car taking their hands off the wheel not paying any sort of attention you know we have technology which can track where the eyes are looking we have technology which can uh, obviously, we can have, we have pressure sensors. We should be, we should be using that, um, and we, I think that might be the only way to put any sort of ease to the public in terms of uh, bringing able to get these systems to the mainstream. Because you need to test them in the first place. But the bigger problem is when you get them into the actual mainstream itself, and that's yeah, where people are lazy. People are lazy. Well, that's you the look thing. At the, that's the, the people thing. in America who designed a device that you could stick on the Tesla t- steering wheel that told the car that it had people holding the steering wheel 
And that goes back to my original point of uh, you have to trust that the people who will be using ADAS will actually be using it for the right reasons. Unfortunately, when you get uh, people like that who are, to put it frank, really abusing um, the purpose of ADAS, bottom line, they're still responsible for their driving. So if they're going to take that risk, Karma's going to come back to them sooner rather than later. My point is, I think we should we we do have technology for gaming where it can literally look into your eyes, look at where you are, and, and make the adjustments for that. I think that we should yep. put that sort of technology into these sort of cars because it can give you some sort. It can give you just an extra layer of protection when it's needed. Um, yep, agreed. Uh, could I, could I just quickly add on to that from sure. Chris's last point there? Of uh, thinking about. Uh, Put it this way, Chris, autonomous cars on a public road, I'd much rather trust the technology in the cars now than I would 10 years ago. For the last 10 years, for the last 10 years, they, they have been developing this, but it has always been behind closed doors on private land. There has to come a crossover point at somewhere where it does need to get tested. Uh, ultimately, people aren't forced into using it. They, they aren't forced into being involved with it, but you're always going to get people who are willing to take the risk. And I confidently would believe that there's not one OEM out there who would willingly put their car on a public road thinking this is going to kill you well, because it would, it would destroy their reputation. Alistair, where do you stand on Can this? I I was going to make an interesting... There's an interesting point with autonomous vehicles, I find, and I've had a discussion with someone about before, is where we've designed for crash in the past... It's always been under kind of the assumption that, okay, a crash is happening. That's as far as the sort of thought about why it's happening has ever gone. With autonomous vehicles, uh, don't envy the people that are going to have to do this. There actually has to be whoever's programming and designing these systems. There is going to be occasionally an unwinnable scenario. There is going to be, I can't think. I'm sure you guys know what I mean. There's going to be a scenario where something has to be hit. Yeah, do you hit the bus stop full of old women or do you hit the school bus full of children? Children. Autonomous vehicles are stuck at the moment is not only which ones do you hit, but who takes liability? You know, if you if your eighty five year old grandmother was mowed down by a uh, an autonomous vehicle. Do you sue the driver? Do you sue the company? Do you sue the government for putting autonomous vehicles on there? Who's liable? It's killer at the moment. When once it's level five vehicles, from the sounds of things, the governments are making this the responsibility of the OEM because the yeah. driver ultimately has absolutely zero control. They are there as a passenger, in exactly the same way as. I don't know, but let's say you're on a train or if you're on a bus, you're there as a passenger, aren't you? You're on the moving vehicle, you're contributing towards that vehicle moving, etc. but you're ultimately just a passenger. Um, I'm sorry. Just it's, it, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very ethical question, but it's, it's exactly the same issue as, well, if the driver was in the car, they've got to make that choice. Do I hit the bus up full of old grannies or do I hit the bus up full of children for whatever reason? I'm thinking that that was the driver's choice, not the system. And then it's not the system's choice, it's the bloke who's written the system. And it, and it all comes to that, down to that bloke and whether or not that bloke's willing to take on 
what would be the liability of killing hundreds of thousands of people because of the choice that it, his car that he that's a big bust off um, he's made well it's not going to come down to just how well, do you not how do you not know the system's not going to see an alternative thing because it's very important to also add here actually that a car a computer system in the car can react up to six times quicker than a human being so how do you not know they're going to be able to spot an alternative option during that mm-hmm. second mm-hmm. and a half just to throw know. it in there. No, it's I a very valid see what you're saying. Yeah. You've also got to look at that. There are as many pros as there are uh, cons mm. against this, but unfortunately, the pros are only going to come with development. I agree. And with mm. each generation, it will get better. Yeah, no, it wasn't a criticism necessarily of autonomous cars. It was just a interesting moral question that engineers haven't ever had to face the question of who is it going to hit and why. Mm. They've only had to face the question of how do we limit damage you've never had to choose where the damage is going to occur mm. and it's as i say i don't envy the people having to design these systems because that is it's a hell of a decision to make isn't it just as a point i i'm pretty sure that a motor company i don't know who it was actually put that question to one of their systems do you hit the old granny at the bus stop or do you hit the old the small child on the side of the road? I don't know the results. I wanna say it made a decision or it made a decision that they went, Oh, bloody hell, that's you know, eight out of ten times it hit the old woman or seven out of ten times it didn't actually have an accident. Was that a binary choice? That was the choice that the car would have made. Not what the company wanted it to do, that was the choice that the car decided. I'd love to remember it. I really would, but I'm pretty sure somebody's done that. If I, I, yeah, the, there are a lot of myths with these kind of discussions as well, which is a bit dangerous. I know that have. This is a conversation which this isn't the first time I've heard this conversation. To be fair, uh, again, like with, with the previous point we were talking, if you can find the links, please send them over to me because a lot of the time it's always what ifs. And also, I found out that a lot of the time it's just from media shit stirring. My brother. So, but if, if you can actually find the report, if you can find any of the links, please send it over to me because I'd like to have a good read of it. I'm sure, again, Sean would love to add these into back of our conversation. My brother actually, Chris, um, my brother actually just gave me a good um, point, which is the it's very much going to be a question for the computer and the companies who are um, coding it. Um, between the passenger and the pedestrian because if nobody if if it chooses to kill the to have the option of crashing to a wall instead of the the other options uh, no one's going to buy a car which is going to kill them it's going to so it's it's a it's a horrible gray area this whole topic um but at the end of the day it's going to take i think as we we've all agreed it's going to take development and testing i suppose to sort of work it out what are you doing get rid of the question no, you're quite right. This is a question which I don't think there is actually a valid answer for. I don't think there's certainly a happy answer for this one. Space it's cars. a really morbid, grey area question, but it is one of the challenges which engineers have to face with this technology. It doesn't matter because AI is basically going to kind of turn out Terminators anyway, so we're all going to be killed as a result. As a, is all true. <laughs> We've seen it. We've, I've, I've seen Downer it. ending. I've seen the documentaries. 
Anyway, guys, um, I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, I want to thank, firstly, Chris and Monty and Al for this uh, episode five. Could I do some breaking news, which could be uh, one of our discussions for the next uh, episode? What, you'll be in the middle of the sea, won't you? No, 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 no. Hope, I've still got another month left, so if you get another one, that's oh, right, then, okay. then, then, then there's a chance for me to join with this. Breaking news, BMW plant Oxford is to shut uh, once uh, Brexit's uh, done that's, in protest. Uh, oh. I'm not sure if that, that's one or what, how I read it, but we'll, we might... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to wrap it up there for the Stereo Chronicles episode 5 um, thank you to all my guests, Alistair thank you for your first participation thank well, you for having me and uh, you, the two normal people you know, you're part of the course now so. normal we're yeah. far from normal Sean well, you're normal to me if, if that helps also, can I just say a quick message on here for Sam Green, hey man, sorry you couldn't join us today, but do remember that you owe me a JSP Roadhog 1 piece self-weighted PVC 750mm traffic cone <laughs> that's okay because um, Matt Scott from the last podcast Monty said that you owe him a beer so for not for yeah, for not saying that's the last one Ah, yes, I do. Don't anyway, that's going to do it for episode five. Matt Scott, I bought him his beer when he was at my Leavers party last week, which you didn't turn up to. But you oh, did give me some money. So that's going to do it for that. That's the fifth time. I'm, this the, that's the end of the Stereo Conference episode five. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>